welcome back to The Short Game. This is a show about short video games, games that respect your time. I am Reagan Kelly, and I am joined by my favorite co-hosts. Oh, nice. Yeah. Don't listen to uh, any of my other co-hosts. This episode is not for you. Uh, you say that to everyone when it's just a, uh, a duo show, but um, you know what? I'll take it. And it's been a little bit since I've been on the show. Um, some things have been getting in the way, so I'll double take it. Uh, me, Nate Heininger, glad to be back. Glad to have you back, Nate. Yeah, life is complicated, as we both well know, with with our daughters doing daughter things. Daughters doing daughter things. Um, you know, I just recently moved. Congratulations again. Yes, thank you. I'm still getting used to this background. You're no longer in a I know. basement. It's at all new. It's it's wonderful. I, I am starting to... You can't see it in the camera, but I'll take a picture when it's done and put it... Like, odd Twitter or something, but starting to put up my soundproofing again. Ooh. I don't know if it actually has a major impact, but it just feels nice to be in a more, this is my podcast space. Yeah, nothing like you know? some soundproof uh, panels to make you feel like a professional podcaster. That's right. Yeah. And that's really what I want. I know it doesn't matter if I am a professional podcaster, I want to feel like one. Exactly. And it seems to me the key there is soundproof panels, 3M Velcro stuck to my wall, which I am working on currently. Very nice. Well, uh, so we are gathered together this week to talk about a game that's a little bit different from stuff that we have covered on the show in the past, but I, I played this uh, a few days ago and I was just so into it that I thought I we have to talk about this on the show. Uh, and that is a little game called Micro Mages. Micro Mages is a uh, NES homebrew game by a developer called Morph Cat Games. So this is a this is a Nintendo game. This is a game for the original NES. Uh, you don't have to play it on an NES. You can buy it on itch.io or on Steam. They very, I think, smartly have a Steam release of this game that is bundled with its own NES emulator. So you can just download it and play it. Or, of course, you can get the ROM and play it in an NES emulator. But this is a ground-up, brand-new game built for the original NES, the original Nintendo Entertainment System, or Famicom, presumably, I think. It's an interesting concept. And I know you're going to talk about some of the uh, technical elements of that here in a moment. but. Um, first of all, when you say it's a game that's kind of different than what we've done before, it is because of everything that you just explained. You know, it's a, a homebrew ground up Nintendo game, but the game itself, which we're going to talk about after uh, we kind of talk about the uniqueness of its development, is right in line with so many other games that we've done for this show before. And and one of my favorite things about the show is that we have the space to talk about super weirdo small projects that people commit and create and uh, make these like really fun and unique experiences. Yeah. Uh, so I, I want to make sure I'm, I'm clear here. You know, there's sometimes you get coverage of, of NES homebrew or, or homebrew for re- retro consoles in general that isn't really talking about like, this is a good and interesting game in its own right. It's more like, oh, wow, I can't believe someone actually made a game for the old 80s Nintendo. No, I'm not talking, we're not talking about this game because, wow, someone made a Nintendo game in 2019. We're talking about this because this is a really, really fun game that actually has a lot of, has a, feels very modern in some interesting ways 
while also being this incredible piece of retro throwback tech. Yeah, and like so that the, the world of like NES homebrew is foreign to me. It's not something that I've really sought before. Um, to be honest, I didn't even really know that people were taking the time to to, to ascend like to act as if they're developing games for the NES because. It's not like this is going to be sold on an NES cartridge anywhere, right? Well, like the fact that actually you, totally is. You can buy this on an NES cartridge. Well, shows what. I, so I do no research on these shows. So uh, <laughs> that's really. Well, I mean, but I, I am. All, I mean, I'll also say I am not an expert on the NES homebrew scene. I, I do occasionally when I see a homebrew game for usually either the NES or the Genesis sort of come along. I'll download it and play it. Often these are freeware or sometimes they're they're paid, but usually not too terribly expensive. And I do like to yeah. give these things a try, um, but I, I wouldn't say I'm an expert on that at all. Yeah. And I, and I guess what I mean too, like, okay, th- they made this and they are going to put it out on a cartridge, yes. but like Nintendo is not making this game. Right. And this is not like a Nintendo game. This is a game that has been made to do with the same limitation that Nintendo games were made during that time, right? Yeah. And, and and that is like a really, really interesting purpose. You know, when I, when I first heard, you know, about that scene, my first thought was like, you know, why? <laughs> <laughs> if I'm being completely honest, like, I was like, that's cool. You know, that's fun. But like, why? We have all of this technology now. You know, it's good to make. I love games that are inspired by that time. But why limit yourself when we can do, when we have much, you know, more complete technology? But then if you boil it all down to, you know, limitation or necessity is the mother of invention. It's like, okay, well, that's actually enough for me to buy into the idea of this. And then playing this game. They actually made a game with the same limitations as a Nintendo game that feels like a modern game. Very much so, I think, yeah. And I think that is a really, really interesting and, and great accomplishment. Yeah, we'll, we'll get into like actually talking about how this game works. But like I'll say if you like and have played things like Towerfall, things like Shovel Knight, things like um, Celeste... This game will appeal to you just on, you know, all of its all of its uh, interesting technical uh, side completely forgotten. This game stands in at least the same region as those as like a really interesting game that's doing really good. I feel like modern stuff with just platforming physics. Yeah, I think that. So, you know, those three games are some of my favorite games that we've done for the show, you know, particularly Towerfall and Celeste are two of my just favorite video games. And having played through a good part of this game, I would say that it lacks maybe some of the depth of those games, but it is as like polished and complete of a, of a, of a one session sit down as Something like Towerfall. Yeah, absolutely. If, does that does that make sense? I think it does. Yeah. So um, I'll set up a little bit more about where this game kind of comes from. Uh, this is from Morphcat Games, which is a developer based in Berlin, and um, uh, I think it's two people. So there's, and I'm probably going to mispronounce both of their names. Apologies, uh, Julius uh, Reiki or Ricky, who did the code and music and sound design, and uh, Nicholas uh, uh, Beto, uh, who did the graphics and the level design. 
Um, and uh, they worked on it for quite a while. They did a uh, they did a Kickstarter for this game. So I actually don't know how exactly how long the development took because when they did their Kickstarter, uh, their Kickstarter was in September and October of 2018 and was just about getting the game out on cartridges. At that point, the game was already complete, um, but their Kickstarter was basically, we want to we wanna do a run of cartridges for this game and they needed you know funds to do that. And so they did a Kickstarter. So today you can go on their website and buy this game on a cartridge, uh, which costs 45 euros. It's a pre-order, but it's a nice... A thing where you get a uh, you know you get a nice box and a manual and a cartridge that will play on any Nintendo Entertainment System, or you can just buy it on Steam or itch.io for eleven dollars or ten ninety nine, and um, in either case you get a version that you can run on your PC and also a ROM that you can run however you want to run an NES ROM. So uh, Nate, you played this on an emulator, right? Yes, I uh, I played it on Open EMU which I don't know of any other ones, but I feel pretty confident in saying that's the best emulator for uh, Mac, at least. And one of the things that's really nice about that is you can pair uh, a multitude of different controllers. So I actually played this whole game uh, with Molly, and we had a Wii U, or just, sorry, a Wiimote connected, and a PlayStation DualShock 4 connected. Mm -hmm. And that's how we played the game on my iMac, which... Is very different than, you know, maybe a type of TV that you would play a Nintendo game on normally, but it looked and felt and sounded great. The controls were super responsive. And uh, for me, I love old retro game hardware. And uh, and so I have a CRT that I like to play these sorts of games on that I keep at my desk. And uh, I have a, an original NES with a flash cart so I can load the ROM onto an SD card and uh, throw it on there. Or alternately, which is what I actually use for this, I have an analog NT Mini, which is a um, modern FPGA-based re-implementation of the NES. So I don't want to spend too long nerding out about retro game hardware. Um, but if you, uh, if you love the NES, uh, I, I 100, 100, 100% recommend, um, first the, the, uh, the flash card I mentioned is a, uh, Crix's EverDrive N8. The EverDrive N8 costs about a hundred bucks and is phenomenal. It will let you load up an SD card with any NES ROMs that you could possibly want and run them on original hardware. And uh, this game works great on that. Um, and the analog NT Mini is harder to get your hands on these days. Unfortunately, analog doesn't make them anymore, but they probably will again someday. The uh, the NT Mini is a very nice um, ground up sort of rebuild or re-implementation of the NES that is identical functionally, but made with all new parts. Um, and it's based on an FPGA. There's lots of interesting nerdery to talk about there. But if you're interested in that, um, go to go to YouTube and uh, look up videos about the analog NT mini um, and people like my life in gaming, for example, will give you a description of why it's cool uh, that will go into much more detail than I want to do on this podcast. Suffice it to say that it's a really cool, uh, basically uh, NES clone made with a really interesting uh, approach called FPGA sort of hardware simulation. And it's really good. So I played this on a fancy RGB monitor CRT with my extremely fancy NES and an original NES controller. And it was an awesome experience. Super fun. Yeah. It's, I, I can't tell like what experience is more overall ridiculousness because I also, you know, I played this on my 5k iMac. Yeah. Which, which feels like 
overkill for a game like this but then it's just funny that i'm playing a nintendo game on an incredibly high resolution tv and then you're going through all of that to play it on the best representation of what playing it you know in like 1991 would have actually looked like i like to think of it more like what would the richest kid in the world have been playing a game on back in the 90s and that's kind of my approach to uh, to retro video <laughs> games there's a lot to unpack there, but I'm glad that you're living now in your uh, 30s, the life of the richest kid in the 90s. I know. It's exactly what I want, man. You did it. I did it. You did it. <laughs> that's, that's why I do everything that I do. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, uh, we both played this game in our own unique ways. And um, yes. I played it single player, but Nate, you played it multiplayer. Correct. And uh, this game can be played from one to four players. And you might be thinking... Wait, Reagan, the Nintendo Entertainment System only had two controller ports on the front. Wait, Reagan, the Nintendo Entertainment System only had two controller ports on the system. Right, you are. But there was an attachment for it that very few people (laughs) had back in its era called the NES 4Score. The NES 4Score was a four-player adapter for the NES, and it was used by a handful of games, I think uh, mostly sports games, but I think also like uh, RC Pro-Am maybe and a few others. Uh, not a ton of NES games supported four players simultaneous. Um, you know, few enough of them supported two-player simultaneous. But this game does. Totally awesome four-player simultaneous platforming. Um, and there's a real lack of four player games for the NES. And uh, so I think it's really cool that they're kind of going back retrospectively and creating some really cool four player NES games. Uh, this, I would have died to play this back in like the late 80s, early 90s. Oh, for sure. I mean, so couch co op or, you know, some version of co op games are some of my favorite games. And when, you know, when we talk about Towerfall, That is why it's one of my favorite games. I think it's one of the best um, couch games that's been made for quite a long time. And this game does it just as well. It's super smooth. Feels very natural that it is uh, multiplayer. Now, I only played with two. I I have a hard time imagining the insanity that this game would be with four players. And it's pretty remarkable that they were able to include or create this game with the density density that this game can have and be able to sustain up to four players at the same time. So I want to get into talking about what makes this game fun and you know why we're why it's interesting from a from a game design perspective and all of that. But before we dive too far off of the topic of just like who wow look an NES game, I want to talk about what an impressive feat of programming this is. Um you know I I'm not a, like I said I'm not an expert on the NES or NES Homebrew. But I mean, I have I have read uh, a book called I Am Error by Nathan Altice, which is a really, if you're interested in the, the hardware design of the NES and the history of the platform and, you know, how how the how the hardware works and why it works the way that it works, that book is amazing. It's very, very interesting. Um, and it goes into uh, all of the business and technical decisions that went into the design of the Famicom and later NES. And in 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 technical detail that I didn't really fully understand, but he makes it very interesting and kind of tells a story with it. Excellent book, hundred percent recommended. And anyway, when I when I saw the developers of this game talking about their game here, 
I immediately was like, I can't believe, I cannot believe that they did this, that they pulled this off. So to explain a little bit, this is what's, what's called an NROM game. It is a 40 kilobyte NES game. When the NES or Famicom originally came out, um, it had a limitation that it could only address 40 kilobytes of game data at a time. Usually that would be 20 kilobytes of program data, the PRG RAM or PRG memory, and then uh, 20 kilobytes of, uh, of character RAM, basically the sprites. And the sprite data is arranged as basically a big grid of sprites, and each sprite is eight by eight pixels. So we're talking like you could you could you could print every sprite in one of these games. You could print their entire sprite sheet on an eight by ten piece of paper and be able to make out all of the detail, no problem. Um, and you know, a forty kilobyte, for example, like MP3 file. Um, you know what? I'm going to play you forty kilobytes of audio right now. That was very short. So we're talking about practically no data whatsoever. That w- And so the early NES games, like the first year or so of NES games, were limited to just these 40 kilobytes of data stored in, in you know, across the entire game, which is why some of those very early games are very simple. Um, and then you see the sort of turning point is Super Mario Brothers. Um, Super Mario Brothers, the first one, was the pretty much the last... 40 kilobyte NROM game developed. Um, after that point, you know, it was clear that players wanted more complicated and more interesting experiences. And uh, Nintendo and other game creators started creating what they call mapper chips, which are basically a chip that sits kind of in between the NES and the and the ROM data and handles switching between multiple banks of ROM data. So the NES never has to deal with more than 40 kilobytes at a time, but you can have multiple banks of 40 kilobytes of data on the on the card. At least that's as well as I understand it. I think some of the later mapper chips got a lot more complicated than that. But anyway, that's how they basically worked. Um, allowed it to address more than just that one chunk of 40 kilobytes of data. But you know, you look at Super Mario Brothers, a really talented developer with like, like real technical chops can make an amazing experience within 40 kilobytes. And that's what the, the developers here set out to do. They wanted to make a game that would be using those limitations that, for example, Shigeru Miyamoto and his team would have been facing when they created the first Super Mario Brothers. Um, and, and they wanted to create the very best possible game they could make within that limitation. Uh, we're talking about like even... NES homebrew developers working today are not generally writing a game that doesn't use a mapper chip. They're all using a mapper chip Uh, or rather, you know, they're probably like simulating a mapper chip. Right. Um, But like, this is insane. You know, when I downloaded this game and I unzipped the file and I was like, this is 40 kilobytes. I was like, what? This didn't download correctly. Like, Uh (laughs) but no, no, the entire game is fit within 40 kilobytes. The developers have a really nice video that's on, I know it's, it's on there. I think it's on YouTube and I'll try to have a link to it in the show notes. It's also on the Kickstarter page for this and in a few other places um, that goes into like all of the programming tricks they had to do in order to pull off fitting the game into this tiny amount of space. Um, You know, just a few of those things, you know, you'll probably notice that all of the player sprites are uh, tiny. They are eight by eight pixels. They are one NES sprite. You know, Mario in Super Mario Brothers is at least, I think, three or four NES sprites tall. Or no, he's too too tall, but he's like 
multiple stuck together. Um, here they're doing it with a single sprite, which means that they they have enough space to do animations, so they can have these fluid animations for the uh, for the characters, the little mages, um, without needing to have a, you know spend all of their space budget on just just the, the character sprite. Yeah, that was uh, something that stood out to me. That is like okay, they crammed this entire game into this small space, yet they still had space for and must have prioritized to some degree the the fact that if you hold down on the d-pad your little sprite starts dancing i know i was thinking i was thinking what how many things did they cut or not include in the game just to add just a little bit of the little mage dancing it's so perfect and it's worth it whatever they whatever they whatever they didn't add uh it was worth it I love that and and there's so many things like that where they've they found an economical way to do wonderful things with the uh, with the art um you know they they uh they reuse the same tiles with different color palettes to to represent different things or with different arrangements um in the video they talked about how they do some some techniques of you know the nes can can uh, mirror or rotate sprites very easily and so they can use a small number of actual sprites assembled in various different sort of rotated or tessellated patterns to uh to represent different stuff uh, they have some pretty large and uh, expressive bosses. For example, the first level boss, the mean ghost, which is such a yeah. great sprite. Uh, it's got an animated uh, shape. It's got multiple facial animations, um, but it's made up of a tiny number of sprites because they do a lot of mirroring and a lot of kind of creative reuse of, of these mm. sprite frames. And they also, uh, you know, thinking of bosses that are definitely memorable, they make the the background, the still image often makes up the majority mm -hmm. of the boss. And it's just like the hitbox element of the boss that is really, you know, its own sprite or like function, you know, so you, so you, in one of them, it's like a giant knight sitting at yeah, a, I love that, you know, at a chair and it's like kind of imposing, you know, you're like, Oh man, this thing's huge. But the actual only part of it that is relevant to the fight is its face. Mm -hmm. And so mostly it's just that that moves or that has any animation to it. It's yeah, it, it's really just, it's just an astonishing feat of programming. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of people out there making NES homebrew and I've played quite a few and this is easily the most fun I've had playing an NES homebrew, which is all the more made all the more impressive by the fact that it is also like it's it's astonishing that they fit it into 40 kilobytes. Yeah. enough about like what a great technical achievement this game is um so if you're if you're the sort of person who finds that interesting like i said i'll have a link in the show notes to the video the developers have where they go into a lot more detail about their technical trickery here that they pull off very interesting watch um but let's talk about the game as a game to sort of segue into that from from talking about the technical nature of it you know we've done a ton of indie games that's our bread and butter on this show and if you had not told me 
this is has the same technical limitations of a Nintendo game, a very, very early Nintendo game, I wouldn't have thought that. I wouldn't have thought, wow, they sure crammed a lot into this small game. I would have thought, this is a good retro game. Yeah. You know, um, but it's, I, I would have no idea that there was such limitation into its development. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's really fun. It is definitely, it's a short game, which, you know, hey, here we are. Um, but it's, it's a complete experience and I played it multiplayer. I know you played it single player. Um, it, I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah. And you know, it, it speaks to how with 30 years of hindsight, developers who clearly like love this stuff, like these, like this Morph Cat games can look back at 30 years of the NES existing both as a, you know, as a console and also in sort of popular culture and like, look back at like, okay, what are the things that work? So for example, like they, they do a lot of this aesthetic style that feels like it's just sort of like this is the aesthetic style that bubbled to the top as the best aesthetic style for the NES which is that sort of um brightly colored uh foreground sprites mostly the background is sort of dark black and using using like hints of splashes of color with lots of lots of darkness surrounding it to kind of hint at more detail than you can actually display um you know, yeah. it's it's stealing a lot of that style from games like um you know like Castlevania or the Mega Man games for example but it also is uh, i think taking inspiration from modern games that aren't built for the NES but that are looking back at the NES you look at something like like there were so many places in this game where like these guys played a lot of Shovel Knight you know yeah for sure so Castlevania was what i was thinking too um when thinking of like what was a semi relevant you know game for that time um but Shovel Knight absolutely i think Shovel Knight was trying to do the same thing that this game was doing only without the limitations of 40 kilobytes. And like, how can we make the best complete modern version of a game from that, you know, era? Um, but I guess let's kind of explain, you know, what the game is. Yeah. It, it's pretty yeah, straightforward. Yeah. <laughs> yeah take take so, it away. <laughs> so you, um, you play as a, I guess, a micromage, the titular micromage. Uh, you have... Uh, you're controlled with the D-pad, and you really have two actions, either jump or shoot. And the shooting works just like most of those games. You fire sort of a, all right, like it's like a little triangle or a little arrow out of Excuse your me, body. it's a spell, obviously. Well, clearly. Yes. Uh, I mean, you're a mate. Yes. You know, so I was describing what it looks like, but you're, of course, you're right. It's a, it's a spell. You're firing some sort of magical. It looks like a magical, spell. Yeah, it looks like a, you're right. I take it back. Some sort of <laughs> magical spell that you're firing and you can fire it just about as fast as you can press the button. So there's like a tiny amount of lag. So it's not going to be like you can't fit like 30 of them, you know, if you can really cram the button, but you can hit it pretty fast. Um, and they, they space themselves out just a little bit and they have a distance that's maybe half the screen. Mm -hmm. You know, it's kind of hard to, yeah, it, it's uh, a, it's, I, I think it's a lot like uh, Mega Man. But yeah, Mega it Man. has a lot more range than Mega Man. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and it, it's directional. So uh, whichever way your uh, mage is facing, if you are standing still and holding up, you're going to fire up. Um, fire left or right. There's obviously no like diagonal. So it's up, down, left or right. I should also add that you can hold down the fire button for a moment and charge up a shot. 
And uh, that is occasionally uh, pretty useful. There are times where you can, um, you know, you might want to be like in safety and then like charge up your shot, jump out very quickly and fire off a sort of more powerful shot and then duck back, that kind of thing. Yeah. And so it's the game is broken into uh, towers, each with four sort of stages in the tower. And you're constantly moving up. So at, at times the 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 screen is locked and your goal is just to sort of make it to the upper part and the screen sort of moves with you as you the higher you go up the more the screen reveals so you can sort of mm-hmm. see what's next but generally speaking the screen is going to be very slowly and pretty forgivingly but very slowly moving up so there is that real slight sort of race for not time but like the stress of I can't fall back down because if you do fall back down uh, and you hit a part of the screen that, you know, there's no more landing, it does count as like as a hit, which we'll talk about that in a second. But in general, you are platforming your way from down up after not that long. Like, I think if you were to ace a stage of a tower, it's probably just a few minutes. It, it takes longer because there's a lot of because it can be quite difficult. Of, yeah, yeah, because it can be quite difficult. But if like you were re- really just like boink 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 boink, like all the way up, I really think it's just like a few minutes. You get to a gateway at the top. After three of those, on the fourth one, the top has a boss. Mm-hmm. And uh, structurally, this game is—I mean—they're very economical about using their space. There are four. You go through four towers, each of which has three levels and a boss. So, you know, via 12 levels and four bosses. And then the game loops. There is a hard mode that follows that initial sort of set of four towers. And uh, it's the same game again, but with clever twists. So, um, you know, the bosses have new behaviors and maybe the level layout in the boss rooms is different. The levels have a different color scheme. Sometimes they have differences in the level layout. So there might be platforms or no platforms where they weren't there before. Um, A lot more spikes. A lot more spikes. Uh, Enemy behavior is different. So enemies that might have just tried to hit you before now have things they can throw, that kind of thing. Um, There's um, the second level turns into an ice level. Uh, So, you know, physics changes, all sorts of little changes in the hard mode, which is a great, um, very often I, I'm annoyed by games that seem to kind of want, want you to just play the thing again. This has enough clever tweaks that, um, it felt like an entirely different set of levels, uh, the second time through. So it really essentially has, uh, a a complete set of eight. Uh, and uh, I haven't gotten to the end of the hard mode yet. I am three quarters of the way through hard mode and who it gets real hard right at the end. So I haven't, I haven't completed that part yet, but it's, uh, I, I, I was surprised how, um, how complete it felt and how not, uh, not annoying it is to repeat these levels with these alterations. Yeah. So I'm just getting into the, uh, the hard mode aspect of it though. I will say it is very much my jam. I'm very looking forward to getting into those. Um, but it does feel like the the base game, or at least like the first four levels, do increasingly get more difficult. Um, but it never felt like a huge challenge to get through the first sort of the core game. It does feel like hard mode is where they're like, okay, now we're going to really test you. 
Like, don't get me wrong. We died and had to restart several times, but like for the most part, it was more like, oh, I died because I was stupid <laughs> and like I wasn't playing as smart as I wanted to. And I was just like hopping around and, you know, didn't see that stupid thing because it, it gets a little bullet helly sometimes um, with the amount of stuff that like bounces around. But for the most part, I felt like it was a pretty forgiving game. Um, but the hard mode does feel, at least in my early tests, feel like a pretty big escalation in the difficulty. Feels a little closer to like NES hard, you know? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So um, a, a couple things I wanted to mention that I forgot to mention a moment ago. Um, we mentioned that this is a vertically scrolling platformer. And there were a lot of those on the NES and they were almost universally kind of bad. I mean, like, you know, some there there are definitely devotees of like your kid Icaruses and things like that. But frankly, I've never felt like vertically scrolling platformers are a thing that really works for the most part. Same. Yeah. But here it really does work. And I think it's because they've they've very smartly uh, included something that I think feels very modern. I, I don't think that um, like Towerfall, for example, can claim to be the origin point of um, the type of wall jumping and kind of wall clinging that this game, uh, I think, frankly, imitates off of uh, Towerfall. But Mm -hmm. like it it feels very modern to have this sort of so this game uses that sort of Towerfall like uh, wall jumping and wall clinging. You can straight up climb a wall if you point your D-pad towards that wall and start jumping. You will kick off of that wall and do cute little jumps all the way up that wall as far as you want to go. Um, and uh, you can bounce back and forth between walls. So if there are two walls close together, you can do very you can very easily execute cool Spider-Man moves, jumping back and forth between the two walls all the way up as far as you want. Um, and you can cling to walls. So it doesn't let you completely stop on a wall, but if you hold the D-pad towards a wall, uh, you will. You won't just straight up fall. You'll kind of slide down the wall at a manageable speed. Um, so it it makes that vertical platforming actually fun. Like I don't. I don't think without that, vertical platforming is a no go for me. But this, it, it's yeah. it's just so smart and fun. Well, it adds a level of stickiness mm-hmm. and forgiveness to it. If you don't quite make the jump that you're trying to make, but you hit the edge of what you're trying to make and you are prepared for it and you're holding the deep end, you're going to just for a moment, you're going to stick. And if you were, if you're paying attention, you can use that stick then to jump and make it to the ledge that you are trying to make it to. So when the, you know, the ground is rising, as long as you're kind of holding the direction that you're trying to jump and you're constantly sort of jumping and hitting that jump button, there's going to be some forgiveness. This game actually benefits by you playing fast. Um, if you're if you're going slow and very methodical, then you're going to fall a lot more. But if you're just constantly kind of moving in the direction you want to want want to go and constantly trying to hit jump and move, you actually will likely make it because of the mechanic. Towerfall doesn't have that degree of it. It's sort of like you you can jump and then do the dash thing. So Towerfall is a little heavier. In this game, this is very, very light. It it's, feels more like a Super Meat Boy type thing where you can move really fast and bounce from ledge to ledge and back and forth. Super Meat Boy isn't a bad comparison. It's It, uh, it has that level of like, it's not that sort of like masochistic uh, no. you know, instant death. I mean, it is pretty close to instant death. We'll talk about the upgrades in a second, but you're pretty much always very vulnerable to death. But it doesn't feel like Super Meat Boy in the way that it's not set out to punish you. No, not at all. And 
they actually because you know similar to like a shovel knight there's a lot of modern forgivenesses that this game has that i don't think if this game was made in the era that it's reproducing basically checkpoints yeah checkpoints that are at a that are at a reasonable uh spot yeah yeah if this game came out as an nes launch title um you would have to play the entire thing start to finish in one go no no questions asked um this game has password saves which i think is a great it's charming in 2019 honestly um, yeah. So you can at the end of each of the levels, it gives you a four digit passcode that you can use to jump back to that level again. I, I actually really yeah. like that about it. <laughs> yeah, it's fun. I mean, uh, you know, that is is just really trying to stay true to the source, mm-hmm. you know, even though you're probably playing it on an emulator. So you're using, you could if you wanted, you could use save states or the game isn't that long anyway. So if you had to play through the first couple levels, you'd be fine. And they give you, you have three lives, but you can just continue. So since the towers are not that long, if you're on the boss of the tower and you do run out of lives, it's not difficult enough that you'll, you can probably make it back to that boss in like 10 or 15 minutes. Yeah. Maybe a half an hour if it's like the last one and it's a lot more, but probably not. It's probably more like 10 or 15 minutes. So it, it can be a little disappointing to die on the boss and have to start from the beginning of the tower, but then you're like, oh, wait, I'm back. Yeah, and it it gives you an incentive to get really good at the levels. You know, like, I liked the process of, like, you know, the first time I started playing through each tower, I would, like, maybe barely scrape by and get to the final boss room with, like, zero remaining lives. But then, you know, the more you die and try to go back, uh, you, know, the, you find your, you know, your optimal path through the tower and suddenly you're getting to the boss with three lives left or maybe even more. Yeah. Uh, you get uh, you get additional uh, one ups uh, every sixteen hundred points or maybe it's sixteen thousand points that you collect. Oh, nice. OK, yeah. We haven't talked about the points. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. Oh, and it's, uh, although it is it is easy to miss them, the way that it does it is uh I think probably designed for the for the fun of a multiplayer experience. When you collect that number of points, a little heart floats up from the bottom of the screen, and you have to go and grab it. Yeah, which so we haven't talked about that, but I'm I, I'm pretty certain that this game is is very referential in a very light ways, and those hearts that come up are very much the hearts from Mario Two. Oh, really? The American Mario. I didn't pick that up. That's great. That's what it seemed to me. I and I, like there's a couple other things that are like I feel like this is a, a reference to something. Um, obviously, you know there. I mean, there's straight up pipes, right? And then there's like a level that's a reference to Donkey Kong, for sure. I could be making a huge stretch, but there's a monster in the game that reminded me very much of one of the base monsters from Chrono Trigger, the guys with the little green helmets that you fight fight in like the first. Uh, world of Chrono Trigger. Um, I don't know. Just seemed to me that there was a bunch of classic video game references in this game. Yeah, it's um, I mean, even the the fairies that they're definitely a bit Zelda-ish, aren't they? Yeah.
talk about some of the upgrades that you get uh, in the game. Um, it is it's pretty simple, you know, it's because it's such a such a condensed, very streamlined experience. There's not like a huge upgrade system, but you know, you start off as your mini mage able to take zero hits. You get hit by anything and you are instantly dead. Uh, um, but then there are uh, there are two upgrades that you can get throughout the game. Uh, it, you can destroy crates, and as you destroy those crates, sometimes those crates, well, most often those crates will contain jewels or gems that you can collect for points. But occasionally they will co- they will include a, a fairy. Looks very Zelda. It's a little pink flying dot with wings. And if you collect it, then it follows you around. And the next time that you die, uh, the fairy revives you. So actually a lot like uh, fairies yeah. in Zelda. Um, and then there's a seagull feather that is the other big upgrade you can pick up in the game that gives you a hover. And it also kind of works like the fairy because if you have that seagull feather, it first of all, it lets you do the hover. Basically, you know, if you jump and then you press jump a second time in the air, you kind of hover at the height so you can do a kind of a glide for a little bit, maybe about half the screen. Um, very helpful in certain levels. And uh, if you get hit while you have it, it kind of works like the fairy and you lose your upgrade, but you don't instantly die. Yeah. And the, the feather is where it's at. Yeah. Because the ground is always rising and one sort of goof, you're going fast and you fall. If you have that, you can save yourself from falling mm-hmm. uh, most of the time. Yeah. So I, I definitely had some runs where I was like, oh, the feather, if you're playing well and using it right, it it makes it where the, a lot of things that would normally kill you, you sort of get a shot to save yourself. Yeah. And the best moment is if you can get to that final boss of the tower with both a fairy and the feather, and then you're like, okay, now I can take three hits. I'm really prepared. Well, take two hits and then a third takes you out. Then I'm really prepared yeah. to uh, to take on that boss. And the most frustrating would be like, I'd get into the final boss or the the boss of the tower with both upgrades and then I would die in two hits within the first 30 seconds or something. It's like, oh, the worst. But it's a it's really nice and simple. Also, there's a there's an additional mode. It's not really an upgrade. Um, but if you're playing this game multiplayer, there's something called ghost mode that I didn't really get to experiment with because I was playing a single player. Nate, can you talk about that a little? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I was actually going to bring that up because the items play a, a role in multiplayer as well. So uh, you know, any good modern game has where if you're playing multiplayer and uh, you die, you still have something to do. And this game it does that in a really, really fun and interesting way. So if you die and your your co-player is still alive, you become a ghost. You are no longer restricted by any sort of movement. Up, down, left, right just moves you on the screen. So you're going through your walls, everything. It's as if none of that exists anymore. And you can still shoot, but instead of doing any damage to the monsters, it freezes them. And it freezes them for like a like a half a second. So you basically have, if you want to freeze them for any amount of usable time, you kind of have to sit and like lay down fire hmm. on them. I love that. It's great because, especially in the later levels, there's a lot of things that are shooting or throwing things that also may or may not be bound by the like the architecture of the level. There are these guys that throw big javelins that travel through everything. And if you happen to be in its path, it kills you. There are these goats. Oh God, the bubble goats. <laughs> the bubble goats that shoot bubbles that bounce 
in a way that seems to be some sort of uh, heat-seeking bubble. There are creatures that when you kill, they shoot bones everywhere, or if it's in hard mode, they're just throwing these bones. So as a dead co-player, you can actually sort of like clear the field a little bit by seeing this guy who's up at the top of the screen throwing javelins down, and you can just keep laying fire on him so he's frozen. Or if there's like a goat or even something as simple as a bat that is perched on the ceiling that comes alive when your when your um, you know co-player gets close enough to it, you just sit there freezing it, making it a super easy target for your partner. So there's a lot of collaboration. Like, hey, I'm going to freeze this goat. You come up and kill it, so you're good. The one thing that you can actually still interact with, though, and do damage to is the crates and treasure chest. Mm. So this allows two different things. One, you can still go around and collect points. And like, again, any good cooperative game, there's a little bit of a competition built into it. So it does track the amount of points that you as an individual gather. So you get these points by killing monsters or collecting gems and items. So at the end of each stage, it tells you who has the most points. So even as a ghost, you can go around blowing up crates and grabbing gems. And then also those items act as a revive for you as a ghost. So you can see up, you know, as the level's rising, maybe there's a treasure chest up in the top left. You have to make this sort of quick decision. Is it more effective for me right now to be freezing this bubble goat or should I rush up to that? Uh, to that treasure chest and break it open and see if there's an item in it, which will bring me back alive. And as long as one player is alive, the level continues. So you can, there is some forgiveness there because if I die and Molly's still alive, I can go around and freeze everything and try to make the like traversal a little bit easier for her until I find a treasure chest and bring myself back alive. (laughs) So you kind of have this like, almost like uh leapfrogging thing where it's like, okay, who are you alive? Are, yeah. Yeah. You're like, all right, be cool, play calm, play safe. And let's get to the next treasure chest. And I'll find something that I can come back alive. There is one item that I'm assuming is not in the regular game that is only in multiplayer. And it is a pure agent of chaos. And it is an item that str- all that it does is switches you on the map with the other player. Mm, okay. What does it look like? I've not seen that one yet. It's it's like a little glowing flower. I, I don't know exactly what it is, but... Oh, you know, I think I do know what you're talking about. I think it just gives you points if you're playing in, in one player. Okay. Well, there's so there's definitely like a little glowing orb that gives you 500 points. Oh, wait, maybe I'm this thinking of that. I don't know. Yeah. So there, there's that, but this is like a little glowing, like almost, like, it looks like a flower, but you know, you, you don't sit and examine them usually right yeah but what's funny is that like it's clearly i call it an agent of chaos because this game trains you to grab item grab it item grab it right and a lot of times the boxes take a single shot you can fire very quickly and the boxes are often in a row so what you do is you kind of get it one end of the row and you just fire and run through the boxes Mm -hmm. just doing you know picking up whatever's in there but if you're playing multiplayer, there is, it seems like a, as good as chance for it as any other item that one of them is going to be this flower. So you're running through, breaking the boxes, and then you run into that item that you weren't expecting, and it swaps you on the map. Yikes. In a very dramatic way. It's not like you just like teleport. It's like you are 
flung between, (laughs) you know? And so all of a sudden, since there's usually a lot going on on the screen, it's this whole moment of recalibration. And you have to be like, oh oh my God, where am I? Because I wasn't watching them, right? They're, you know, who knows what they're doing. They're in some platforming moment, maybe literally in the middle of a jump, maybe shooting a bubble goat, who knows? And all of a sudden, whoosh, we're swapped, which was funny, sometimes terrible, often like someone would die because of it, you know? And so it'd be like, hold on, take your time. Don't just grab every item. But it's like, no, I got to move fast. You know, what are the chances? So it added this like sort of funny uh, random element to it. I don't, I didn't play single player. I don't know if the uh, enemy amount is increased for multiplayer. It, it definitely seemed like there was an appropriate amount, appropriate amount of bad guys for two players. You know, it was definitely still challenging for the two of us. So I don't think it's just you're playing the single player game with more people. Um, but it, it was a lot of fun. And I cannot imagine the three player element of it because you don't you can't occupy the same space. And if you like hit each other, if you if you land on anyone's head, you bounce. Yeah. So did you play any of the, have you played any of the, the new Super Mario Brothers games? Uh, yeah, like yeah, Wii, I have, Wii? yeah. This does have a little yeah. bit of that going on. It has this sort of like a uh, competitive co-op kind of vibe to it. Yeah, like, so, you know, if you imagine that there's uh, a series of platforms that you have to jump across, and if you don't make the jump, you die. And each platform, though, is the size of one sprite of one character and then you have everyone who's trying to do that yeah you know and unless you as a group are being like okay line up you go then i'll go then i'll go then i'll go unless you're doing that it's generally chaos and people are being pushed off the edge and falling in and it's really really funny and and there's a lot of death in it (laughs) same thing same thing in this game unless you're like coordinating who's going when you can definitely hinder each other's ability to make a very basic platforming jump, which can be very funny or frustrating depending on your life count and, and depth into the tower. So I, I had a, I had a lot of fun with this. I mean, I was not expecting when I, when I decided to download this game, I just grabbed it on itch.io after, after seeing something about it on a, on a, a retro gaming forum. I think maybe it was on Reddit or it might have been, oh, I know where it was. I saw it on, uh, on the retro RGB uh, uh, YouTube channel. Um, and I thought that looks, that looks pretty fun. I'll download that and give that a try. But I was not expecting to cover it for the show. Um, but this game astonished me with its like like modern, fun game design that had like it feels like a really modern 2019 indie game with some really clever, fun game design. You know, short, yes, but that's our bread and butter here. But it's a it's a nice, small indie game uh, that was built, just happens to have been built with incredible limitations from a technical standpoint that just, just serve to highlight what creative, great work is being done by these developers. I mean, it's it's really a stunning piece of work. And I mean, I'm really tempted now to go pay the 45 euros and get myself an NES copy of this. But I mean, I, I think I'll probably uh, probably continue just playing it on my uh, on my EverDrive. But it's just such a such a great game. I, I 100% recommend checking this game out. Um, if you have a device that can play NES games, and you do because anything anything with a screen can NES emulate an NES. 
um, you should download Micromages. I would recommend grabbing it on itch.io. It makes it really easy to just download it and grab the ROM file. You can download it on, on Steam if you prefer to, to have it in there. Uh, and just give it a go. It's a, it's a really terrific little game. Yeah, I, I definitely recommend it. I was, I was surprised. And I'm really looking forward to trying it the next time that I have an opportunity to play a four-player game. Uh, I think you know this will now probably be, if I'm showing off my, uh, my retro game setup, to people. Um, this might now be my default game to pull up because it, it'll be an instantly fun, accessible four player NES game that I can just have people jump in and try. I think that'd be a really yeah. rad way to, to sort of, you know, if I'm, if I'm doing my little brag session on my, uh, on my cool CRT setup here, this will probably be what I put on. Yeah. For sure. So um, you can find this game I mentioned already on Steam and itch.io. Um, I would say beginning to end, this is probably about uh, three hours max. Yeah. You know, your mileage may vary. Yeah. Right. Depends on how, how difficult you find the hard mode levels, um, which puts it right in the short game wheelhouse. And uh, it is in, uh, it is $10.99 on all of the storefronts. Um, so uh, go check it out. Listeners to the show know, of course, that we like to end the show with a little segment we call What's Making You Happy This Week. So, Nate, what is making you happy this week? Yeah, so um, a, a lot, but something that I'm really interested in that has been making the rounds on all of your video game media is a new project and an upcoming release by the development team Panic. Oh my gosh, this is so exciting. <laughs> I love this thing already. It, it's so strange. So, you know, Panic has been a software developer for a long time, but over the past few years, they, you know, um, very openly and really earnestly decided, like, why don't we make video games? And they their first release was Firewatch, which is one of our favorite games. They have a game coming up called Untitled Goose Game, mm -hmm. which, uh, you know, I, I'm also very excited and they decided, why aren't why don't we make a weirdo little handheld console, a little handheld gaming device? And so, first of all, I'd say that like I I'm always down for just like a weird project, right? And mm -hmm. I, and I love to see. Uh, I think it's particularly effective in the games, um, and I love to see developers of this caliber decide to do something strange i know and, and, and kind of risky right i don't know what their overhead you know what the cause of this was but definitely kind of risky to release a little console uh you know right now especially a handheld one when it's like well just get a switch um <laughs> but th this is a really unique attempt and I i'm really excited by the concept of it i will also say that uh if you're not familiar with them the company that they partnered with for the hardware is actually some a company that I've been very very into for quite a while now. It's called Teenage Engineering, and they have been known for making really interesting, strange, and super powerful and super dense and effective synthesizers and musical um, creation tools. So, quite a long time ago, on an episode, I had these little machines, these little like beatbox uh, synths that I was playing with on the episode during what was making me happy. Oh yeah. Those are so Do you fun. remember yeah, those? I do, yeah. Those are made by Teenage Engineer. Yeah. So the company that made those is a weird moment of worlds colliding because uh you know one of my good friends and um someone that I play a lot of music with, he has one of their high-end synthesizers and it is a truly 
good feeling and effective piece of hardware. So they partnered with this company for the actual creation of this device. So I can't tell you how excited I am just to like, just to feel and hold and see this piece of equipment because I have, that is like, if I, if I were choosing a company to make something like strange and fun and unique with it, that's a company I would choose. Mm -hmm. And they're like a weird, I think they're from Sweden. They're like this weird, tiny synthesizer company. So the fact that panic and them have partnered is bonkers to me and has made blows my mind yeah and has made me hype to a degree that i didn't think i just this this is a concept that i never really would have imagined i I think it's so neat the way they're approaching this you know this they really are approaching this as like a fun project for panic you know panic is such an interesting company i've been i would kind of say a fan of theirs for for a long long time they made um, Matt, they've made Mac software for something like 25 years or something now, uh, maybe 30. Um, they, they made, uh, the first MP3 player software that I ever used. It was called Audion. And it was, I think the first software, certainly the software, first software that I ever used that included like skin functionality. And they were, so they had this, this like vibe of fun that ran through all of their software that persists today. They still make a lot of great Mac software, including, um, the one piece of software that I use of theirs the most is transmit, which is a Mac FTP client that, you know, if you're listening to this show, it is because I uploaded it to, uh, Amazon S3 using the panic, uh, transmit client. And, uh, I love their software. And, uh, they, when they moved into doing games, I was just like, what a weird thing for them to do. But it also makes perfect sense because, you know, their company's run by this guy, Cable Sasser, who's just like a really interesting guy. And, the way he talked about that decision and this one too is just like, well, you know, we've been making Mac software for years. And I mean, you know, I, I run this business. Why can't we just do something that we want to do? You know, something fun that we want to try and like, oh, well, yeah, absolutely. You've got a company full of smart people who can do a fun thing. Just go for it. And, you know, as long as you're not losing anybody their jobs, then you're doing the right thing. Yeah. And if you do it well. It'll probably work. Yeah. I mean, right? they published Firewatch. That did really well. They're, you know, I'm sure that Untitled Goose Game will do well for them too. So, yeah, I bet this will do well. And I think they're also probably, it certainly seems like they're doing it at a limited right. run. This is going to be like a niche boutique thing. They're not out to compete with any other video game consoles. This is going to be, this is going to be like a toy for people who love good design and uh, fun sort of scaled down games. And the way they're distributing the games is really clever too. They're doing this, um, what they call a season of games. So they're, they're commissioning 12 games by known interesting game developers. They're keeping most of it under wraps, but the first one is by Keita Takahashi who makes, who made the, um, Katamari. It's another, it's another, like, it's another like prong in things that I love that I never thought would come together. So the developers panic, the engineers, teenage engineering, and then the developer, uh, Takakasha, Takahashi, is, it's like, I don't know. I, it's it's like, worlds colliding. Yeah, and it's definitely like a formula that I am all in. And also, um, you know, the price, $150, probably a lot for like a niche toy, but also doesn't seem like too much for the I, I've spent more than $150 on a lot stupider things. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean... Yeah, earlier you were talking about your $100, like, NES emulator. Oh, no, no, so. no, no. Okay, uh, Nate. The, <laughs> oh, 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 hold on. I stepped on some toes there. Let me walk. Tr- try, try closer to $500. <laughs> oh, my God. All right. Yeah, so uh, I am very hyped about this. I'm very excited. It's not going to come out for a while. 
but I'm definitely on the wait list. Uh, I intend to, if I can, be on the um, sort of first run of it. I think it's cool. It's going to look cool. It's got a crank, which I for sure thought was going to be how you power it because that just felt like that's something they would do. It's not. It's just for the games. Yeah, you, it's an analog control, which is the weirdest thing, but I can't wait to see what they do yeah. with that in games. Yeah, it's so strange. It's like everything is going to be like Bigs the Cat's fishing game or whatever. <laughs> yeah. I bet there'd be a good fishing game on there. So I'm, in, I'm into it. It's making me happy. Again, I love companies trying weird shit and this feels very weird and I bet will be great. So. That's awesome. Yeah, it's making me happy this week too actually. Like very very happy to see that happening and I can't wait to to see what comes out of it. Um I guess the other th- the thing that's making me happy this week is also a surprising game thing. Um and that's a game that I didn't know existed until I heard about it on the Waypoint podcast uh recently and so credit to them for for bringing this to my attention and I'm really glad they did. There's a game that came out on Switch just here recently called The Friends of Ringo Ishikawa. And uh it's it's hard to describe this game. I'll do my best, but um I'll also link to a article from Tim Rogers at Kotaku. Um Tim Rogers I think does a pretty good job of like explaining why this game is so good in a review sort of piece that he wrote uh called A Teen Dirtbag Beat 'em Up with Phenomenal Writing. Um the the Friends of Ringo Ishikawa is a beat 'em up in it's a it's pretty explicitly a homage to River City Ransom or the Kunio Kun game. So if you played River City Ransom back in the NES era, you probably remember like it's a beat em up where you're fighting across town. You're sort of tough high school students and you're going to go save your girlfriend and there's light RPG elements. So you're doing things like buying food at stores in order to restore your health. You're buying books to learn new fighting techniques that then you can use uh, in, in combat and so on. So light RPG stuff. The Friends of Ringo Ishikawa takes that play style and layers on a sort of Persona-esque um, uh, sort of life sim element and a story that is just a story and writing that are just not the kind of thing that you see in video games. Uh, it's really striking. It's it's a sort of a wistful, um, the developer describes it as existential story about a tough guy in high school in Japan, a very stereotypical, um, you know, Japanese delinquent guy and his uh, gang of delinquents from his high school, who uh, the, the the game starts with an incredibly cinematic scene where they're they're you know getting into gang fights, they're sort of fighting their way across the city, fade to black. One year later, it's their mm. it's their uh, it's their final year of school, and basically it starts with a with a, a teacher telling them telling Ringo, you know, you've got to clean up your act. It's, uh, it's, you know, you, you, this is your last chance to clean up your act. And then the, the story plays out over, I think about the the final year of high school for Ringo, where he's clearly struggling with, or just trying to decide whether he wants to clean up his act. Right. And so every day as Ringo, you get choices. It's not, it's a very open world. You can walk around town and decide how to spend your time. Do you go to school and study in class and up your stats and try to improve your grades? Do you go get a job at the um, at the um, uh, mechanic or do you get a job as a clerk at the video store? Um, do you just go get into fights constantly and beat people up for money and then go spend it on hamburgers? And all of this is peppered with writing. Like the dialogue in this game 
is very striking. It's hard to really explain why, and I'm not just going to like quote it at you, but I will say that the writing in this feels literary in a way that I I haven't seen. Like it immediately struck me as like, wow, someone put a lot of care into the writing mm. of this game. Every word of it is just it's just it's just carefully done, um, and the the way the characters speak is very unique. Um, I really really like it. And I've only played a bit of it. I, I played through, I played it for several hours at the start and I was kind of flailing because um, at first I didn't really understand the combat system and I was getting my ass beat every day. And so once I figured out the combat system, I've actually just restarted the game to play it from the beginning because I, I was kind of flailing in the first little bit. Um, mm. So uh, as far as tips, I, I would recommend checking out this game. It does zero tutorialization. So if you start it um, and you don't want to kind of flail like I did at the start, um, the, the tips that I would give you are, first of all, at least the beginning of the game, um, n- never get into a fight without your without your gang. You know, go get your gang first. And that's life advice. Too. Oh, yeah. That's some short game life advice. Absolutely. Right there for you. Yeah. I never get into a, a, a fight without my co-hosts uh, backing yes. my play. Of course. We have had many a brawl with other uh, low-tier video game podcasts. Yeah. So yeah. low-tier, you never heard yep. of them. Why? Because we destroyed them. So yeah, I, I just I, I can't recommend this enough, and I think it got kind of bad reviews. If you look at its uh, at its um, Metacritic page, I think it's like in the sixties or something, which is kind of low. I think it's mostly just because people probably either bounced off of its frankly kind of slow pace and um, and really considered and just downright unusual tone (laughs) yeah i mean when you put it that way that's not super uh appealing but i think overall you're telling the the story of a yeah no it's it's a it's a truly it's a truly uncanny experience it's like it's not it's not like something i've played before and um uh, or they might have bounced off of it mechanically because like uh it's very easy to get into a cycle where you are starving you have no money to buy hamburgers and you are getting your ass beat every day which like resets the clock so like you know leave your bed go get your ass beat go back to bed um so if you're not if you you don't take the time to kind of like puzzle out what it's doing particularly if you never played something like river city ransom which this pulls from so heavily um then it's easy to kind of get stuck at the beginning of the game and not figure it out but i cannot recommend this Mm. enough it's on steam and it's on the switch now and uh, I think it is $15 on Switch, and I think it's 10 on Steam, and I would absolutely recommend it. So um, that's making me happy this week. Cool. Yeah, I, I, I was kind of giving you crap for walking. It sounded like you were walking back a lot of the nice things you said, but it does sound like a, uh, a fun game. Oh, no. I, I, if, if, if that sounded like a negative, it is absolutely not. I mean, is, you know, it, what is the pace of Anna Karenina? Like, it is, it is not, uh, not fast-paced. And, uh, but it is, uh, it's its own thing. This has, this has a pace that stands out in video games Ah, by, by being considered and by being, by asking you to take your time and think about how Ringo spends his time. I mean, like, here's a small thing. Like the game is constantly asking you, like the, the, the underlying question of the game is like, are you turning your life around? And Every minute you have a choice about what Ringo is doing from, you know, mm. it, the, the game has a, the game has a, a button that you can hit to squat on the ground 
and just sit there and do nothing. There's a button you can hit to smoke a cigarette and you can spend your time just having Ringo stand around smoking cigarettes and with his, putting his hands in his pockets and looking menacing. And that's a choice that you can make at any time. You have a button that goes into delinquent mode and will make you look more <laughs> threatening. Um, nice. Or, or you can go to class but going to class means that you have the 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 when you go to class that takes a certain amount of time and you get a bonus to your to your uh, your you know your grades stat from it. But in order to get that bonus, you have to hold down a take notes button the entire time you're in class. Fun. You don't have to just you don't just go to class. That's what I look for in a video game. <laughs> it's 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 brilliant. It's it's like it's so brilliant at conveying its tone. It's it's yeah, and its tone is not just like. Wouldn't it be cool to be badasses who beat people up in the streets? It's like, isn't it tragic? <laughs> it's like, yeah. isn't it tragic to be this badass who beats people up in the streets? It's brilliant. I don't know. I think people should play this game. Yeah, sounds cool. I'm into it. Okay. Um, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of The Short Game. Uh, I am Reagan Kelly, and you can find me on the internet at www.theshort... Well, you can find our show on the internet at www.theshortgame.net, where you'll find a contact form, uh, which is a great way to get in touch with us. Thank you so much to the folks who sent in suggestions recently. Uh, and uh, some of those were great suggestions we'll be getting to very shortly. Trust me on that one. Um, and uh, you can also find me on Twitter, at Reagan K. That's R-A-Y-G-A-N-K. Nate, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter, at NateSTL. And also, I want to say... Um, been a little while since I've been able to do this, oh, but um, one of my favorite things is when someone leaves us a very nice comment on iTunes. Uh, I like to shout them out. So shout out to Chill and Cute uh, for their comment. Yes, Queen, and a very nice thing that they said after it. So uh, one of the simpler and better uh, reviews we've had in a while. And I also say uh, we've had the total number of nice reviews go up with less comments uh, for a while now and that is cool too we love it when you go in and write something really nice it means a lot to us and we read it and we share it and we're like you know it's fun uh, but even just going in and just giving us the stars that you feel represent how much you enjoy the show is also nice so thank you for those who take the time to do that because it does mean a lot yeah thank you so much for taking the time to leave a review or ratings on apple podcasts and especially thank you if you've introduced a friend to the show shared the show with people uh on social media etc any way that you can do that uh, helps our show out and we really appreciate it so thank you yes. to all of our listeners and uh and hopefully we'll catch you next week on another episode of the short game